Hello, and welcome to Behind Genius, where we look at individuals who've helped spearhead the success of companies and others. Today, I have a very special guest, Abby Lyle. Abby, welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here and excited for the conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm super excited to hear what you have to say. For those of you who don't know Abby, Abby is the program director at Big Idea Ventures, a seed stage VC fund, an accelerator program that invests in top companies in the alternative protein space. Before joining the BIV team, Abby was the second employee at Quake Capital Partners, where she ran five accelerator programs, worked with over 100 portfolio companies across industries, and assisted in the accelerator's expansion to three different locations. Abby holds a degree in finance, computing, and data science from New York University's Stern School of Business, and previously founded a startup in the education technology space. With that being said, Abby has a really non-traditional path into venture. So Abby, what was the inspiration and the events that led you up to your current job at Big Idea Ventures? Absolutely. A little bit of background about me. I got started in the entrepreneurship space while I was a student at NYU. I started a company my freshman year at NYU called MyDrop in the edtech space, like Josh mentioned. We were a digital platform that connected high school students with volunteer opportunities. I started the company, a friend of mine and I had a shared experience of having trouble finding quality volunteer opportunities when we were in high school and not, you know, really knowing where to go for our National Honor Society hours. And we all went to the same soup kitchens and and kind of stood around and felt like we didn't really add value to, you know, our lives or the nonprofits. So uh, we decided to start this company our freshman year to tackle that problem. Ended up, you know, it started off as sort of a smaller, more casual side project, really just to boost our resumes for the investment making jobs that we thought we wanted. That was, I'm not going to lie, that was kind of the underlying motivation behind um, the additional entrepreneurial endeavor. I think people, people can paint it however they want. And I was this grand entrepreneur that took this huge risk starting a company in college. And really it was, I you know, wanted to work for the Goldman Sachs, uh, like everybody else, and, and, and thought it would be a cool resume booster. But once we actually got into it and started building the product and talking to customers and building out the business and participating in a lot of the programs and competitions that NYU had to offer for entrepreneurship, I really learned that that was where I wanted to be and, and that I wanted to do something in entrepreneurship in the startup space. And the more that I kind of worked in finance and and had exposure to sort of the traditional financial world, the more that I realized that this work that I was doing with my startup was much more me and, and was much more the path that I felt most comfortable in. Where I felt most at home was building my own thing, building something from scratch. Um, I'm very much an individual, not someone who likes being told what to do. I haven't had a lot of success in sort of traditionally hierarchical environments. So um, that experience, being a founder and starting a company um, was really formative for me and, and, and showed me that that was what I wanted to do. And I wanted to do something that touched the startup or, or, or entrepreneurship space. And at the time, I didn't know much about VC. I you know, was thinking that I would probably go work for a startup or maybe go start a different company. We'd ran my drop for a little over two years. We were winding it down. I was a junior in college at that time. 
And Brandon Meyer, who I knew through the NYU startup community, he was a friend of mine from there. He was in the process of launching a new VC fund called Quake Capital, which was my first job, ended up being my first job out of college. And he approached me at an event. We both went to a lot of the same kind of NYU startup events and and knew each other pretty well through mutual circles and said, hey, you know, I know you're winding down your company. I have a new VC fund that I'm starting. Would you want to come on board and work for us? So I did that starting midway through my junior year of college. I was the second employee there at Quake. So even though I was still in school, I was able to really make a huge impact on the creation and the founding of this brand new VC firm, which was really cool and really interesting and definitely very different from your sort of traditional venture capital analyst or associate experience that you might recruit for through regular methods. It definitely wasn't that experience at all. It was much more scrappy. I was signing everyone into the student center lounge at NYU to work out of it because we didn't have an office yet. And I was building out a lot of really cool programming for university startups, which was a big focus and hiring an intern team, as well as helping build out the infrastructure for our first accelerator program and sourcing and doing due diligence on the deals for that. So it really was a sort of very hands-on effort, had the autonomy and responsibility of a full-time person, even though I was in college. And then my responsibilities grew and grew as the company got bigger and more established. And then by the time I graduated and came on full-time, I was managing all the operations and logistics for the most part for our New York accelerator. I mean, it's kind of incredible to think that it all began as a student founder, which many people's journeys into startup land starts with founding your own company, whether it's as simple as a lemonade stand when you were 10 years old or duct tape wallets at soccer games, um, trading them at soccer games. So I'm wondering that experience freshman year How important do you think it is to have operations experience before entering into venture? What advantages has it really given you to evaluate investments in startup land? You know, I I agree that the operating experience is important and really valuable. I get this question a lot. I don't know if I would stick my name on, you know, it's 100% necessary. I, I certainly know a lot of venture capitalists in the community that really respect that have more of a traditional finance or consulting background, or, you know, I think there's other backgrounds that can also be valuable. I think engineering background can be very valuable. I've seen journalism backgrounds um, produce really great venture capitalists. So I think, you know, there's not really a one size fits all approach. I think there's definitely many ways to go about it and, and a wide variety of different paths into VC. I think for me, the main benefit that having that experience as an operator gave me was empathy and the ability to understand where a founder is coming from and the struggles that a founder is facing. And having had that experience of of running a company and especially in college where I was very young, had very limited professional experience, really had no idea what I was doing. Um, I really bumbled around and, and, and made a lot of mistakes and, and was by all accounts quite an awful CEO. So I, I think having had that experience of 
I got thrown into it and it was messy and I made every mistake in the book and failed miserably. I think that's really helpful, particularly with the stage of startups that we work with, which is very early stage, pre-seed and and seed stage companies. Having that empathy and, and having had that experience of, you know, falling flat on your face and, and just, just totally, utterly failing at something. I think you, you're a lot more understanding when a founder hits a roadblock and you're able to much more effectively help and guide them through those rough points that are inevitably going to come with building any business. Speaking of building businesses, you've had a lot of experience helping build funds up from the ground up. And you've done it at Quake. You're doing it again at Big Idea Ventures. What's the most exciting part of helping build a fund from the ground up? And do you think it gave you an advantage to breaking into venture knowing that that fund was really early in terms of its life cycle rather than joining a more established fund and what's the differences between joining an established fund versus a fund that's more early on in its life cycle? I think it was definitely a factor for me in terms of getting those jobs initially. You know, I'm obviously very young, very early on in my career. While a capable person, I I didn't necessarily have a strong resume, um, you know, just through lack of experience. I don't think honestly that coming right out of college, I would have been able to get a job at at one of those sort of more traditional venture funds. Now with a few years of venture experience, maybe that would be different. But I think, you know, there aren't a lot of venture funds that are looking to hire someone right out of college. And a lot of times they want to see two years of investment banking or two years of consulting or, or something else. So I definitely think that as a sort of unproven entity with being young and 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 not having those sort of you know two years of of whatever other experience i i do think that there was a natural fit there between me as an unproven young person um but that's you know wants to prove myself and 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 is willing to come in and kind of do anything and 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 get my hands dirty I think there was a natural there was a natural fit there between where I was at coming out of college and and, and the skill sets that I that I had or, or didn't have with a very young and, and, and very new fund. And I think new funds, just like startup companies, I mean there's there's a lot of similarities between young funds and and young, you know, startup companies of, of other business models and other sectors. I think you know, there's a lot of opportunity there for a young person that may not, you know, look great on paper or or may not have a million big brand names to stand behind or a pedigree from a big investment bank. But if you can find that young company that's also just starting out just like you are, you have the ability to take on, you know, additional authority and responsibility and autonomy that would not be available to you at a more established fund. And every culture of every fund's different. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind when recruiting for VCs or, or looking for a job in VC. I think um, you know, the the culture is very much shaped by whoever's leading the fund and, and, and the partners that are at the top. They're generally quite small teams, but the cultures of these young funds and these smaller funds that I've been a part of that have just been starting out have been 
very open to taking risks, very open to taking a chance on a young person that, you know, showed promise, but may not have the pedigree. And I think I'm very grateful for that. And I think that there were a lot of really great opportunities presented to me by starting out in smaller funds, newer funds, earlier stage funds. I think I was able to take on a lot more responsibility and, and prove myself a lot more as a result of having started out out there instead of more of a traditional analyst or associate program. And so kind of going off that because you're, you're still a young individual and yet you've been able to establish yourself and build relationships with other investors, other founders. What do you think is really important when building up your network early on in your career and how can you go about creating meaningful relationships with other investors to the point that they're sharing deal flow with you and that they're even calling you up for due diligence on a company because they trust your opinion and what is your opinion on what is inherent age discrimination in VC sometimes when it comes to hiring and even founders' demeanors towards young individuals in the industry? Totally. Well, there's two questions there. I can tackle both of them. Yeah. So, so the age discrimination thing is, is totally real. Um, it's something that I've experienced a lot. It's, it's very prevalent in, in the industry and, and particularly as a woman, I think that there's a lot you know, there's the age discrimination, and then there's also gender discrimination. And if you're part of another marginalized group, then, you know, you can just, just keep tacking them on. Um, so it's, it's absolutely something that happens. And, and I don't think it's completely undeserved. There definitely are a lot of, there's a bit of a reputation among, you know, younger VCs where, oh, they'll meet with you and they'll waste your time and they don't have any real power. And, Maybe that's true for some funds. I can say at a smaller early stage fund, like the ones that I've worked at, where the team is only maybe like four or five people to begin with, every person on that team has a massive amount of influence and decision-making power. That's just the case when, when you're working with such small teams. So definitely my advice to founders that are seeking VC money would be to not write off anybody just based on how they look or how old they are. Um, you just never know. Every fund's different. You never know what the dynamic of, of a fund might be. There's been lots of investments that we were you know, thinking about doing at Quake and then you know, ended up not doing because you know, we saw something there that we didn't like in relation to me or another younger member of the team, even an intern. You know, if you, if you show yourself as someone who would treat anyone badly, even if it's just an intern, that's generally not a founder that funds are going to want to work with. So um, always treat everybody with respect. Take everybody at face value. Think that approaching it with that mindset is, is, is really what's going to get you far. And, and I definitely have experienced tons of age discrimination. Um, there's definitely a epidemic of of young people not being taken seriously across all industries and i think that's something that with the internet is has changed a bit i think we're starting to see you know young founders becoming very successful and and you know proving that you can make a difference even when you're young and it it, it always makes me really happy to um to to hear those stories and and to see those people being successful so i think you know advocating for yourself is the most powerful thing and i think being able to to stand up you know stand behind your work and stand behind you know 
your accomplishments and the things that you know you've done and the things that you know you're good at, even if it might be unusual for someone your age. I think the more authentic you can be in that regard, that's the best way to kind of fight against it. Isn't it safe to say that even at a larger fund, if you're an associate and an analyst, right, that they can be the greatest champions for your companies? Yes, yes, absolutely. Across... Across the VC industry in general, it's the analysts and the associates and the the younger folks at the fund that are doing all of the sourcing and the vast majority of the, the legwork on due diligence. A lot of times, you know, something that is a career defining moment for you as a founder, as in getting venture money, can also be a career defining moment for them, as in maybe it's you know, the first big deal they've done, the first big success that they've brought to their firm. So there's so much opportunity for founders if you view young people in venture like analysts and associates as your allies. And and that is, in my opinion, the exact right way to go about it. And I would give the same advice to analysts and associates at, at, at the funds as well. I think if you're seeing the founders as, as your allies, a great founder and bringing them into your fund is a great thing for you. You know, if you bring a successful deal to the table that goes through, that's an amazing thing for your career. And then for the founder, obviously it's a wonderful thing because then they get venture backing and, and all the benefits that are associated with that. So absolutely. I think that that's one of the strongest and least valuable types of partnerships that there, I think that's one of the strongest and most valuable types of partnerships in, in the venture world that there is. And I think it's one that's often overlooked um, or discounted based on, you know, certain rumors or, or, or certain, you know, bad actors at certain funds that, that give, you know, the rest of the industry a, a less savory reputation. And so with that being said, if you're an analyst or an associate or a young individual who's in venture, and really wants to find that company that you can convince your GP, hey, this is one to invest in, this is something our fund should back. And how do you end up gaining the trust of your GP? And also, how do you gain the trust of other investors to eventually also invest in that company so that you're mitigating risk for your LPs by making sure that your company that you're pitching to your fund is closing out their round. Absolutely. I think this question actually ties in really well with the first part of the other question that I didn't get to. And and that's about networking. And I really think that that's the number one way to boost your credibility in the VC industry, both to folks at your fund, other VCs that other funds, as well as to founders your network is gold and your network is the biggest thing that you're going to be able to bring to the table. And by network, I don't mean, I would like to be very clear that I don't mean someone that you met at a happy hour once and talked to for five minutes and got a business card. That is not what I'm referring to. Your network is your friends. And in the startup ecosystem in general, and really in VC, there is so much overlap between professional life and personal life. And there are a lot of really cool people in the space. Like that's one of the most awesome things about being in venture and being in the startup community is that there's just a lot of really cool people. Like most of the most interesting people that I've met in my life have been 
through the New York startup ecosystem and in some way, shape or form. It's just an industry that attracts really cool, fascinating individuals. And you can get to know those people as people. And the more you build genuine relationships with them, you know, people want to help their friends when it comes down to, oh, your fund's hiring and you're looking to bring on someone for a new role or, oh, your fund is investing and, and you know, looking to write some checks for, for some startups or, or, oh, you know, you're, we're looking for a partnership for this or a partnership for that. The first thing that's going to pop into everyone's head when they hear that is their friends. If we're hiring for a new role, the first people that I think of are people that I'm friends with, you know, someone that I grabbed a drink with and we stayed out, you know, hung out for four or five hours, stayed out late, had really cool conversations about all sorts of interesting topics that may or may not have been related at all to, you know, our business or their business or our fund or their, you know, their work or, or whatever. It's all about making friends it's about those real genuine connections, those real genuine relationships, not, you know, how many meetings did you have this week or how many coffees did you get or how many connections do you have on your LinkedIn? But do you have real relationships that you can genuinely draw on where you know that you'll actually be able to ask this person for something and they'll genuinely deliver for you because you know, you have a real relationship, you know, your friends, you guys have a relationship that goes beyond, you know, shaking hands awkwardly at some sort of networking thing. So I, I think that that's the number one way that you source deals and, and get good deal flow. Um, if you're, if you're a young person at a fund, um, it's the number one way that you add value to startups that you've already invested in as a VC through partnerships and introductions. It's definitely the number one way that you get a job if you're trying to break into VC. And I can point to many, many examples of all three of those things in my life where that was the case. And I think that that's really the main way to do all those things effectively is just being yourself and making friends. Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's really important, making friends in VC, if you want a job in VC, because most VC firms do not make it public that they have positions open. And so you pointed out one way to get into VC, which is making friends. Really simple, but not a lot of people take advantage of it. Do you think it also helps to build a brand around being a specialist? Or do you think there's advantages to being a generalist before seeking a job in VC? So this is my opinion. Um, there is a lot of noise out there. Everyone's got a blog. Everyone's got a podcast. Everyone's got a Twitter. Everyone's got a LinkedIn. Everyone's doing all that stuff. There's a lot of information overload. There's a lot of rehashing of opinions and rehashing of ideas because people want to seem smart and people want to seem like a thought leader. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that there's anything wrong with any of those things. But I don't necessarily think that you know, building a platform of, for thought leadership just for the sake of it is necessarily super valuable or necessarily what's going to get you there. I think that the, if you genuinely have a really revolutionary thought or idea, 
then that's incredible and that's really valuable and you should totally be putting that out there. But just like doing something like tweeting a lot because you think it's going to help you get a job or starting a blog because you think it's going to help you get a job, just creating stuff for the sake of creating stuff is not valuable in my opinion. I think there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of information out there. There's more articles and podcast episodes out there than, than, you know, time to consume them all in a day. So I think saving your brand building activities for when you genuinely have something truly unique to offer that you haven't seen before. Um, I think that's the best way to do it. And I think that'll prevent you from getting lost in the noise. And then when someone does see something out there from you, then it's actually genuinely thought provoking. It actually gets something out there that, that makes people think. And I think that's the best way to be a thought leadership, to do thought leadership in the space. That and the genuine connection. It's sort of along the same lines of, starting a company. You know, you wouldn't start a company just for the sake of starting a company because you want to be an entrepreneur. I mean, maybe some people do that, but if you're doing that, you're probably not going to go very far. The best companies are ones where you've genuinely experienced a problem and you don't see a viable solution for that problem out there. So you're going to go start a company to solve that problem. And I think the same is true for brand building. Personal brand building for the sake of personal brand building and ego massaging is just going to add to the noise. And I think everyone can see through that quite easily. If you sharing your genuine thoughts and opinions that are differentiated and, and, and above and beyond what is out there in any forum, I think that's the type of brand building that you should be doing. I think personally, people create content because they see it as popular and they're like, oh, this might blow me up and help me get a job or help me increase deal flow. And I think we need a lot more originality when it comes to content creation and brand building and venture. So I couldn't agree more with you. With that being said, we're almost running out of time here. I want to do a quick fire round of questions that get to let us know a little bit more about you personally before we wrap this all up. So we're gonna to try to do this in under two minutes, get through 10 questions. So who is or what is your biggest inspiration? I'm gonna go with my father and I know he's gonna to listen to this. And I think, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective, he was a very early example of that. For me, um, starting his own practice and you know, seeing him, hearing about him overcoming hardship in his life has been something that's been inspirational for me. So I try to, you know, take that example that I grew up with in my own house and, and carry that with me in the professional world. Awesome. Favorite book? A business book. If you want to break into venture, you should absolutely read the book Venture Deals by Brad Feld. It's a really good primer of all of the sort of basics of the industry and, and all of the, you know, technical things that you need to know to be successful in venture. It's a quick and easy read, not too dense. Life personal book everybody should read The Four Agreements. It's super short. Um, it's an hour, It's only took me an hour to read. My mother recommended it to me. It's, it's, it's been something that's been super life-changing, that as well as my exploration into philosophy and mindfulness. It, it, it ties into a lot of those 
trends and I think does a really good job of making them accessible to people. And I think that anyone who sort of follows those general principles is going to have a lot of success, both in professional life and personal life. I actually love the, the personal book that you recommended. I've read it as well. Oh, yeah. Awesome book. Awesome book. It's, it's totally worth it. It's like the shortest book on earth. Um, it's totally worth the hour, hour and a half. All right, let's get through three more. Favorite hobby? Hobby. Well, since I've been stuck inside, I've been doing a lot of yoga lately, which is great. Um, would love to dive more into that in the future and maybe become an instructor. I don't know. I think it's a cool mixture of physical fitness and mental fitness and, and, and kind of helps me keep it in perspective that everything's holistic, everything's tied together. And, you know, you can't separate body and mind. They're one. And if there's something wrong with one of them, then, you know, you, you're, you're not going to have a very well-functioning uh, version of the other. What is your biggest pet peeve as an investor? Poorly worded and unresearched cold emails. Use one word to describe yourself. Just one word. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Put me on the spot there. Come on. It was the most relevant thing. It popped in the head. Where do you imagine yourself 10 years from now? I'd like to be a founder again. I think I had a really great introduction to it starting my company in college. It wasn't you know, the, the, the traditional founder experience in a lot of ways, I really would like to flip back to the other side of the table, um, go start my own thing at some point over the next decade. I, I think I don't really have the resources to do that right now. I think I'd like a little more experience, definitely a lot more savings before um, I feel comfortable doing that. But it's definitely where I see my career going. I think being a founder and, and starting my own company is, is what I want the rest of my career to look like. And one last question before you wrap this all up. What do you think defines success? Like if you were to define success, how would you define it? I think there's a big problem with the way that we think about the word success. I think in society today, particularly, you know, young people, people I went to school with, people in my generation, I think we think of success as something to get to. Like, oh, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to be successful. And, and I think that thinking of it as an end goal and a place to get to is just going to keep you perpetually unhappy. So I think reframing the definition of success as being happy with where you are in that moment and being satisfied with where you are in that moment and just being fully present in that moment and okay with where you're at and accepting it as a journey. I think that's the most success you can possibly see because I, I find all kinds of people that have reached traditional success markers like a lot of money or a job that everybody wants or whatever, you know, great family. And I see a lot of people with those things that look really great on paper. Their life from the outside looks fantastic and that just aren't happy. And I think that that comes with an improper framing of it in your mind as this place to get to and, and, and a destination. And I think as, as long as you think that success is something that you'll get to at somewhere in the future and instead of something to to take for yourself right now, you'll never find it. And I think that is a beautiful way to wrap up this show. So with that being said, 
I would like to first thank Abby for joining us. It was so great having you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it was really great chatting and um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully people find it informative. Best of luck with the rest of the show. Absolutely. If you want to hear more content on Behind Genius, go to our website, BehindGenius.com. All my personal social media accounts and professional media accounts are on there. I'm happy to connect with anyone. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you have a successful venture ahead of you.